Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm your host, Brandy, and this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Well, you might have noticed someone was missing out of that intro. Um, I will, I'm going to tell you all of the food that Chris made to pair with my dry rosé from Arche Winery in St. Joe, Texas, um, but he's a little under the weather, so I will be doing this episode alone. Now, before we hop in, um, once again, I am drinking, <clears throat> excuse me, a dry rosé from Arche Winery in St. Joe, Texas, which I received from the Texas Wine Club. You can find them at txwine.com. And listen, I hope you caught us on WFAA Good Morning Texas. So if you did, or if you're listening right now, please, please, please head over to txwine.com and put in the code TXWINE. They are going to know that it came from you, which came from us, because we are the only ones who have that code. So if you go in and um, place that order, you will get $50 off your wine right to your door. So go see our friends, txwine.com. Arche Winery, thank you for this dry rosé. Um, Chris paired a Mediterranean grilled shrimp and vegetables with mushroom red rice. First of all, it was beautiful. I posted pictures. We're going to be posting some more pictures. Um, he made also a lemon dill yogurt sauce to go with it and a lemon, <clears throat> excuse me, a lemon tartlet for dessert. So please um, go check out the food. Thank you, Chris. When you listen to this um, for the meal, it was absolutely delicious. So let's go ahead and get into our case about Jody Arias. So we covered this case at our live show at Henry's Majestic. Don't forget, first Thursday of every month, we are at Henry's. Um, this was a national case. So I know we always do Texas cases, but I, I, I do tell everyone, we love to come out of Texas and really um, hone in on some of these cases that people think about, have thought about, invested in. We all know this was a national case. Jody Arias is spending life in prison for murdering her lover, Travis Alexander. This case was absolutely bizarre. The trial, absolutely bizarre. The behavior of Jody was so telling. So let's get into this case. Travis Alexander was living in Mesa, Arizona when he meets Jody Arias. So Travis is 30 years old at the time. He is a devout member of the Mormon church. Um, it wasn't always, he wasn't always a part of the church. Life for him was a little tough growing up. Um, he was with his parents who were both drug users, drug users, alcoholics, and he is actually rescued by his grandmother and she is the one who actually introduces him to the Mormon church. So I do believe he's about 10 or 11 years old when he goes to live with his grandmother. And he starts to become very involved in the Mormon church, especially as he gets older and he's becoming a teenager. Uh, you know, they do the different retreats and it, it's it's like a big community. And this is what he wants to be a part of. He wants to live the truth as it's seen in the Mormon community. So when he is 30 years old and when he's meeting Jody Arias, he is actually working for a multi-level marketing company called PPL. Now it stood, it stands for prepaid legal services. So this company is actually now called, um, 
Oh my gosh, it just left my tongue. The name of it is called Legal Shield. That's right, Legal Shield. So because of his Mormon faith and his, you know, their comfort to go out and talk to strangers, talk about the church, he became this natural born leader and top recruiter for PPL. So he decides he's moving to Mesa, Arizona. Now, when he meets Jody, he's already in Arizona, but he ended up moving to Mesa in 2004. The reason is because they have a large Mormon community, one of the largest in the country, actually. So if you are a Mormon um, and, you know, and you're a young person like Travis, this is where he said he wanted to be. So he's very successful at, at his business. He ends up buying a five-bedroom home. He drives a nice car. He actually, I do believe, had two cars. He took fun trips. I mean, this young man is thriving. He is doing public speaking for PPL. He is, he is considered a high executive now within the company. Um, but something interesting about him, right? So you meet him, people that know him, you know, he, he loved the Mormon community, but there were friends, right? And a lot of this stuff comes out after he, he is no longer alive. Um, but they start to uncover, you know, the fact that he's kind of living this double life. He had broken the chastity rule in the Mormon church. He had dated women. He he had slept with women. And his close friends knew this about him. But they also knew he was a great person and loved his church. And he kind of battled this bachelor life versus church-going life. Um and his friends did agree, like, this was a kind of a constant battle battle for him, you know, to be a good member of the church, but also wanting to live that exciting life. Now, um, I want to kind of give some details about how Travis Alexander and Jody Arias met. So Jody at the time was looking for something to sort of turn her life around. She was with a man she had been dating for about four years, living with him at the time. She wasn't really making any money. She really didn't have a career. Um, Jody had left home, I do believe, when she was 16 or 17 and ended up moving in with with a boyfriend. Um, you know, it's interesting in the trial and in the different in the different interviews and when you hear Jody talk and, and a lot of this came from her parents, you know, she was raised in a very normal household. And even her mother would say, you know, something in you thinks you had like this bad life. And we're not really sure why you feel that way. So there was just some animosity and, and things that were not working in her home life. Um, as a teenager. So she did decide to move out. So at this time, you know, she's been living on her on her own for a while. So she decides in 2006 that she is going to join PPL. And, you know, it, it's a it's a good way to make money, right? She She's a very personable person, some would say. Um, she was she was pretty and knew uh, what, how to talk to people. So this was sort of like a new a new beginning for her. Well, she finds out that there's actually a convention coming up. There's a, a convention coming up, and she wants to go to this convention and start to meet some new friends. So she goes to this PPL convention, and 
<clears throat> Travis, who is at executive level in PPL, he has two tickets, one for himself and just an extra because most of these people bring a spouse or a girlfriend or just a date. Um, but Travis was there alone. And some, somebody in the executive team had told him that they had recently recruited a pretty girl who just happened to be at this convention. And since he didn't have anyone to take to this fancy dinner, they set these two up on a blind date. So Jody and and Travis actually met on a blind date at this convention set up by his friends at PPL. Now, remember, at this time, she's already living and dating someone for four years. So she she hangs out with Travis that night. They have dinner. Um, they, you know, they, they ha- start to have a crush on each other. I mean, I'll say that, right? It's one night, one dinner. Two weeks after meeting Travis, so she goes home, right? It's convention's over. She goes back to the boyfriend. Two weeks after meeting Travis, she breaks up with her boyfriend and tells him she has found someone else. Um, it's also believed that she even told him when she when she left that she had met her future husband. So she could no longer be with him. She had to prepare herself for him. Two months after meeting Travis, Jody decides to become a Mormon. So she asked Travis to be her sponsor, and he says yes. She knew Travis would never end up with a woman as his wife unless she was Mormon. A lot of Jody Arias's friends also say that, you know, she sort of was grasping at the spirituality thing, right? Um, trying to always find herself. She read a lot of books. Um, Chris made the point when he was watching some of this on the the trial, you know, how well-spoken she was. And her mother would even say that she would tell her to read these books, right? And her mom would look at these books and think, I wouldn't even think about reading this. So some of it was a little outrageous. She was very, I would say she was a little eccentric and, um, but, but I think she was very highly intelligent. Uh, and I think she made a lot of mistakes with this crime. Um, and, and she may have gotten away with it if a, certain things would not have happened um, against her. But, but in regard to just being able to um, become a Mormon, right? She knows that he's not going to marry anyone who's not a Mormon. And is this her way of like grasping at a faith that maybe she felt like she de- she didn't have? So I think maybe for for her, this was much more very early on than it was for him. So they lived in separate states. They met in other cities. And that's how they ended up getting together most of these most of this time. They traveled together. They were sleeping together. They seemed to be enjoying each other. Um, and she wanted this guy. She was ready to settle down with Travis Alexander. Now, and even though she became a Mormon, what Jody doesn't seem to realize is by having this type of relationship with Travis is making her less and less wife material according to his faith. So his friends will say he ended this relationship because he felt guilty about not living as a true Mormon. So their short relationship ended in 2007 
Or so that's what Travis thought. Now, after he breaks it off with her, she does something that most people don't do when someone breaks up with them. She decides it's a good idea to move to Mesa, Arizona. So she packs her bag. She is now back in California where where she is from and living with her grandparents. Um, and she decides that she is going to go back to Mesa um, and move there. Now, she tells people she's moving there because it's a big Mormon community, and she's now a Mormon, and she wants to get involved in the community. But we now know she wanted to move closer to him. Um, She wanted to be near him, and his friends knew it. He knew it. He was sharing this information with his friends that he was very bothered by this, and it it did not make him happy. Um, He wanted her out of his life, but the thing is, is that he was still sleeping with her. When she moved to Mesa, Arizona, I'm going to talk about some red flags, some major red flags that were happening while she was there, and Travis was noticing. It's not like he didn't notice because he told people, he even told someone specifically he had a stalker. His friends were noticing, you know, she was just doing some very unusual things during her time in Arizona, so we'll talk about that in a bit. All right. So after a little while, she decides that she needs to go ahead and move back to California. Um, He was ready to get back in the graces of the church and tell friends that this move, you know, is going to be good for him. He's really happy that she's decided to leave Arizona and go back to California. Um, So, you know, this is the thing. She's in Arizona. She's trying to be a better Mormon, according to her. She wants to be near him. We know there are some red flag behavior stuff going on. I don't know. Maybe if he had a, a, a big conversation with her about, you know, you need to go, or maybe he threatened to call police because some of the stuff was red, big red flags, and the police should have been called in some of these instances, but he didn't. He didn't call them. Um, so I don't know what the breaking point for her was to leave Arizona, but clearly because of what happened, it it probably was not on the best term. Um, and it wasn't like, you know what, we're broken up. I'm just moving on. It was, you know, much more than that. Mimi Hall is getting ready to go with Travis Alexander on a Cancun trip. She is packing her bag. They are leaving the next morning. Now, Mimi Hall will actually take the stand in Jody Arias's trial. And she is the one who told the court that Travis had told her that he had a stalker. Now, Mimi Hall did not think of Travis Alexander as a boyfriend or really any. There, It really was nothing more than friends. But he, on the other hand, had a crush on Mimi Hall. He was actually going on this Cancun trip with her. And he had invited her to go. It was like a company retreat trip. And so she said yes. And so she's packing her bag. But here's the thing. Travis contacted her daily, right? Just to say hi, just to check in. She hasn't heard from him in almost five days. Now, that's a problem. She thinks, what's up? This guy and I are supposed to get on a plane tomorrow and go to Cancun, and he's nowhere to be found. Um, so 
she decides, okay, I haven't heard from him in several days. I'm going to his house. So Mimi Hall goes to Travis Alexander's home. She knocks on the door. Doors are locked. Nobody's answering. She's getting a little spooked by this. She sees, you know, she sees vehicles in front of the house. She sees some lights on and ringing the doorbell, knocking on the door. So she calls a friend to come over and meet her at Travis's house. And this girl brings her boyfriend. So they come. So now all three of them are continuing to knock and hope somebody comes to the door, but nobody ever comes. They eventually decide to call a friend of Travis's that actually has the code to the garage door. So they end up using the code, they get into the garage, they go in through the laundry room, and immediately, I mean immediately, they smell an odor. So they think, this is strange, This does something doesn't smell right, they make their way to Travis's room, and the door is locked. They're knocking, calling out for him, but there is no answer. So they're starting to get very worried. Now, this is bizarre because Travis Alexander has two roommates. They go to the roommate's room, who, by the way, is actually home. He opens his bedroom door and they ask him, you know, did you hear us knocking, ringing the doorbell? And he says, well, I'm watching a movie. And they said the volume is blaring. So that's why he couldn't hear them. And that's why he didn't come to the door. So this is what he tells them. So they ask him, where is Travis? And he says, well, he's in Cancun. And Mimi Hall's like, nope, I'm supposed to go to Cancun with him. And that's not until tomorrow morning. And I haven't heard from him in almost five days, which is very unusual. He's not returning any of of her calls. So she's telling him, you know, what's up? And, And he's like, okay, well, I have a key to his room. So there's also another guy that lives there, Enrique Cortez. Um, They end up talking to Enrique and both him and his roommate say they haven't seen Travis in almost a week. They thought he was in Cancun. This is what they will tell the police. And when they, when they're asked about the smell, they said it smelled like garbage. Like these are bachelors. I, you know, they thought maybe it's just dishes or old food. I mean, I don't know. I, I wasn't there to smell it, but that's that's what they tell police. So he retrieves the spare key to Travis's room, and they decide to open the door. Um, the roommate goes in. Everyone else stays in the hallway. There is blood all over the room. Um, there was a hallway. So Travis had the master master bedroom. There is a hallway that leads from the room to the to the bathroom, and in that hallway, his roommate sees a massive amount of blood walks around the bloodstains, and he finds Travis deceased in the shower. Okay, so he comes out of the room, and he's saying, call 911, you know, Travis is Travis is dead. Uh, they call police. So police get there, and the one thing that they notice is the house is, like, spotless. It's clean. It didn't look like anything was out of place or out of the ordinary nothing until you get to the bedroom. So now they know, you know, this is where the actual attack took place on this young man. There is blood everywhere. There is um, all kinds of evidence just sitting in the bathroom. They also noticed his body looked like it had been placed in the shower. 
they didn't really, it almost had looked like they had, that they had washed him off because when they look at him, they see that he's deceased. And because it had been almost five days, you know, the body is starting to change. And so the, this is how they end up pinning the time of death and the, and the day of the death. But it didn't, it looked like they couldn't really tell what his injuries actually were just by looking at him. One thing that did stick out is they actually find a bloody palm print on the wall leading from the bathroom into the bedroom. They also find a 25 caliber casing on the bathroom floor, but they did not see a gun. Um, yeah. So again, the body, like I, I remember like looking at some pictures of it almost looked, um, I mean, it, it just looked cleaned off. Like you could see some incisions, but you really couldn't tell that how much blood had been lost except for just the blood that was all over the room. Um, okay, so they make their way around the house and they make their way to the laundry room. And inside the washer are towels with a digital camera. Now, they talk to the roommates. The camera actually belongs to Travis um, the camera would not turn on. It had been washed with these towels, but the memory card was still intact. So they take the memory card and the camera into evidence, um, and they want to see if they can maybe extract something from from that actually memory card, which they do. Uh, there was no sign of forced entry. Nothing was stolen. They believed that it was an inside job. The two roommates had alibis. They looked into them extensively, but ultimately decided they had nothing to do with Travis's murder. Um, after Travis's death, okay, so I would say between 24, uh, well, I would say about 48 hours after he um, he is found deceased, Jody Arias calls the police and tells them she knows Travis and heard he was dead. Now, I think I pretty, I'm, I'm almost certain I probably said this at the live show, but this is what people do sometimes who are guilty of things and they want to sort of insert them into the investigation, right? And be helpful. Uh, we, we hear about this, you know, maybe someone's missing and the person who took them has gone to look for them, right? They're a part of that search party. So I think this was her motive here. I, I think she couldn't stand the fact that she, you know, didn't know what was actually going on, right? And she wanted to, you know, give her part, you know, tell her part, do her part, because she was just devastated he was gone. So they start talking to Travis's friends. Um, and and by the way, Jody Arias, if you want to listen, uh, like I said, there. There are multiple documentaries, um, docu-series on Jody Arias, and they talk a lot about this stuff in detail um, in regard to her phone conversations with police, what she's, what information she's giving them. So those are very easy to listen to. If you want to go back and listen, um, you can hear those conversations. So they start talking to Travis's friends. After, especially, well, mainly after they talked to Jody Arias, right? Uh, because she calls early on. At this point, they've only talked to really the roommates and the friends that, that found Travis. And they all said nobody would want their friend dead except one person. Every single finger pointed in the direction of Jody Arias. Now, police are thinking, could this woman who has called the police department to tell them how much she cared for him could this girl have done something like this to Travis Alexander? So they start looking into Jody, 
And they find out that she was actually meeting a man by the name of Ryan Burns in Salt Lake City at a PPL event during um, over the course of the week that Travis, um, excuse me, after the murder of Travis, right? So the timeline is I'm in Salt Lake. I could not have done this because I was in Salt Lake type of thing. So Jody tells police that she spoke to Travis a few days before his death, but that she had not seen him since April when she left Arizona and moved back to California. She tells police on June 2nd, she leaves her home in Northern California, heads to Southern California to see a friend, and then arrives in Salt Lake City on June 5th, the day after Travis was killed. Now, police end up talking to Ryan and they tell him, yes, she was in Salt Lake City. Um, He said she arrives about 11 a.m. on June 5th looking happy. Um, But there were a few different things he noticed about her. First was her hair color. She had dyed her hair brown. She was no longer a blonde. She also had cuts on her fingers, which he did ask her about. And she told him that she got the injuries while bartending. And so with with right with the story he's giving and the story she's giving, there's nothing really to tie her to Arizona at the time Travis is killed, right? She's living in California. She actually will will end up telling them the route she took to get from Northern Cal to Southern Cal and then up to into Salt Lake. Um but Guys, they end up recovering photos from that memory card. And what do they see? Okay, so because of what they see, this was like the nail in the coffin for Jodi Arias. Because remember, she says she wasn't there. She never places herself in Arizona in Travis Alexander's house. But this camera will. Now, police, when they see these pictures, they decide we're going to Eureka, California, and we're going to have a conversation with Jody Arias. So they drive from Mesa, Arizona to Eureka, California, and they talk to Jody. So bizarre, bizarre. You can see these interviews. They are public. Um, Jody agrees to meet the detectives at the police station. Now, Detective Flores, this is the main detective from Mesa, he starts to ask Jody questions. You know, where were you? How did you get there? Draw me your route from the time you left, you know, Northern Cal, Southern Cal to Salt Lake. Um, but not once does she ever say, like, why am I here? Am I a suspect? Did I... It, she's very self-involved and very in, in drawing maps of, of where she was. And, you know, she says, I, I have told you everything I know. She starts engaging with them in this bizarre manner. And they really aren't believing anything she's saying. He knows he has proof now. He wants her to admit that she saw him and that she was there. And it, after she draws the map, he's sort of done with her And he says, do you want to see these pictures? And she said, what pictures? He said, well, I have some pictures I want to show you. Do you want to see some pictures? And so he pulls out the pictures. And some of them are Travis Alexander in the shower. Some of them are Travis Alexander posing um, nude on his bed. Some of them are Jody Arias nude on his bed. Um, 
so she starts saying thing and and you know, I remember in the when I was watching this interview, the police officer is pointing at the picture of Travis nude and she says, "Oh, he would have never gone for that." Um, she's already setting the tone that these photos have been um, tampered with. She'll even make a statement in regard to the timestamp and that timestamps can be manipulated. So um, he then shows a picture of her self nude on the bed. And he said, you know, that that's you. And she said, yes, that's all of me. And it's just this very strange interaction she has about about these pictures um and at that point you know he's kind of done with her and she says you know I, she wasn't in mesa on the fourth but then now you we have photos the day of the murder right and what takes place by accident the camera takes a picture now police believe this is when she either dropped the camera or was the the camera brushed up against something and then went off. Something made the camera go off and they do believe it was dropped or or somehow fell over because it took a picture of the her foot. You see blood, you see pants and they believe they believe that that the foot is hers and that Travis is Alexander. She's basically standing over his body. Um they told her, you know, that they found her hair covered in blood um, that, you know, and she said, well, yeah, my hair was all over the house. Of course, you're going to find some blood if there's blood in the bedroom and my hair's in the bedroom and, you know, and this back and forth thing. And, um, you know, it's funny. This evidence reminds me of the Murdoch case when the son is taking the video at the dog kennels and they don't, you know, like he he knows he's taking the video, right? The dad, and then you hear the dad in the back. I mean, this is what ultimately ends up convicting Murdoch was was this sort of video, right? And and he says he wasn't there, but then the video put him there because th- his voice is picked up in the background. You know, same similar thing. I think she thought she was going to destroy this in the in the washing machine, and that they would not be able to recover any of these photos. Um, but they did. So she, he basically tells her, "Look, we're done, and you're going to be arrested for murder." So he leaves the room. Her behavior just becomes more and more bizarre. She starts singing. Um, oh, holy night! She does a he- like a headstand on the wall, almost like a a yoga calming pose. Um, He comes back in and she says, now I know this might sound a little selfish um, and a little self-centered, right? But can I freshen up a bit? So she wants to freshen up y'all before her mugshot. So the next day she's now being interrogated once again, but this time she's wearing an orange jumpsuit, you know, that prison attire. And she is ready to talk. She tells detectives they're, um, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready. At first she says, I'm not ready. So I think by day two and a half, three, she's finally ready to talk. So she says a guy and a girl entered the home. Um, she says they killed Travis. She runs into the closet. She said the female wants to shoot her. She follows her into the closet and she tells the guy, you know, we don't need to leave any witnesses, but the guy tells her, you know, just leave her. Let's get out of here. Um, 
So basically, like, he saves her, right? He saves her that day from this other girl in a mask. They're both masked, you know, people with guns. And so, but the thing is, she never calls police to report this story. And Travis is laying in the shower for five days before he is found. So they don't buy it. Um, Y'all, his autopsy actually showed he had been stabbed 27 times. His throat slit from ear to ear, almost almost decapitated, and he was shot in the head. They believe he may have already been deceased before he was shot just because there was so much controversy at the trial of like where the bullet went in and, and where it entered and why there wasn't, you know, specific blood found around and uh, around where the actual shot took place. And basically they were test the, the expert was testifying that it's probably because he was already dead. That's why we're not seeing any of this evidence. So, um, trial, 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 gosh, um, she is convicted of capital murder or excuse me, charged with capital murder. She is heading to trial. Um, she is given a court appointed to attorney. His name is Kirk Nermy. Uh, he will actually later blame his cancer diagnosis on the stress of dealing with Jody Arias for six years. He said there were daily phone calls. She would ask him for personal favors. She treated her lawyer almost like a personal assistant. I mean, she was a nightmare for this guy. Uh, defense attorneys don't want their clients talking to media, being a guest on any show, but she would invite Dateline to interview her in prison. She was invite the news outlets to come into the prison and interview her. She was the worst client for a defense attorney. And he ends up writing a book about this. I, I will tell you. And he, he says that cancer riddled his body because of the Jody Arias case. Um, so, but, but here's the thing. He's her lawyer, so he's got to come up with something. He knew the intruder story did not make any sense. Um, he needs to find a different defense because he knew it wasn't he, that she would have no chance. So Jody starts telling him, "Well, Travis was attractive, attracted to teenage girls and teenage boys, and that Travis was abusive. He verbally, you know, attacked her, um, physically attacked her, and she had to defend herself." And so this is what they took to trial. It was self-defense, okay? And by the way, the reason the trial ended up like it did is because nobody stabs someone 27 times and then slits their throat ear to ear and then shoots them because that's a little excessive and not self-defense. So interesting they went with this based on the wounds, but what other choice did he have? Travis's friends knew immediately that Jody was responsible for his death. We learned a few things in this trial. Again, I'm not going to dive way into the trial. It was bizarre. I watched every single moment of it. You can find most of it on YouTube. Bizarre, bizarre, bizarre. Um, but his friends knew Jody was responsible for his death. So did so did Travis's family. We learned a few things in this trial. Um one was that he had told Mimi Holly had a stalker, but he never gave the name. She would let herself into the garage. She would sneak into his house and she would sleep on his couch. Sometimes she would sneak in, undress, and then get in bed with him while he was sleeping, but not tell him that she was actually there. She would show up unexpected. She stalked him. She hacked into his social media accounts and basically the motive, prosecutors believe she found out about the Cancun trip with Mimi Hall 
realized that Travis had this trip planned, that he didn't ask her to go, and that was just unacceptable. So after searching her email account, they find an email from Jody to Travis on May 28th, and she mentions the trip to Cancun in that email. Prosecutors believe once she found out, this is when she began to plan the murder because this is the same day, May 28th, that her grandparents call the police department in Wairika, California, and tell them that there has been a robbery and that their gun has been stolen. That gun has never been found. Um, like I mentioned earlier, there is just a lot to this trial. Um, we could probably talk about that specifically for hours. But that self-defense claim and the claim that he was abusive and a pedophile, by the way, she had recorded him on, had, She they played a sex tape of, of their conversation in court. Um, I remember just listening to some of these reporters saying cringe. I was cringing the whole time. Why do we have to listen to this? And Travis Alexander clearly had no idea she was recording this. Um, and so she, you know, she was saying that these are this, these were his tendencies. You know, in one of those recordings, he said he wanted to tie her up to a tree and do X, Y, and Z to her. Yeah, I mean, maybe he just felt like this, she was that person he could do this with. I don't know. Like maybe, you know, he's a young man. He had fantasies. I don't know. But this is, this is the route they took in court that this is the kind of guy he was. He was abusive that she had to, she had to put up self-defense because he just became too rough with her that day. And, and, you know, she, she had to defend herself. Um, the prosecution, um, oh, one thing I want to mention, she, the ex-boyfriend that she broke up with, remember I mentioned him um, when she met Travis, he ends up testifying. The prosecution team, you know, had a little bit of nugget of information that they did not disclose until he takes the stand. They ask him, did Jody come by your house on her way out of town and borrow two gas cans? And he says, Yes. So he gives her the two gas cans, okay? So why is that significant? Because when they went through her stuff in, in her grandparents' home in Wairika after she was charged with his murder, they found receipts. She kept all the receipts from her travel from Northern California to Southern California and then also from Salt Lake City back to California, but there was nothing, no receipt from her, from going from Southern California to Arizona and Arizona um, all the way to Salt Lake. And why is that? Because they, she wanted to make sure there was no record of her going to Arizona, being near Arizona. So she borrowed these gas cans and was filling up. So she would not have to stop for gas. So the ex gets on, testifies. Here comes the prosecution with this little nugget about the gas cans. They were not expecting that. Um, but yeah, she kept all the records from her trip. The California, Nevada, Utah, no stops in Arizona. All right. So prosecutors show premeditation and, you know, that she started planning this crime after that email, after finding out that she that he was taking another girl on this trip. Um, the other piece of evidence that I want to share um, was also how this all ends up um, 
you know, with Jody Arias taking the stand, y'all, she's on the stand for 18 days. That is unprecedented, unheard of. Um, this is this was not your normal. In fact, I don't know if I've seen a trial like this one, to be honest with you. Um, but she was on the stand for 18, 18 full days. By her testimony, the text messages sent back and forth, they clearly had a very unhealthy relationship. There is no doubt that these two, she'll even say in one of the jailhouse interviews that they were actually never boyfriend-girlfriend. They just sort of hung out. I mean, bizarre. But yet she's willing to murder him over someone who he wasn't even dating, right? I mean, just this irate, instant jealousy. And that's and that's what, you know, that's her reaction. Um, the the trial lasted four months after deliberating for 26 hours. Um, the jury finds her guilty of premeditated capital murder. So Jody Arias ends up asking for the death penalty for the punishment. So she tells the court, you know, her ultimate freedom would be to die. And she requests, you know, that they take her life sooner than later. Um, so here's what's interesting about this trial. She ends, they can't decide on whether to put her to death or to give her life, okay? This happens twice. Once once you've now, okay, so you if, if it goes a third time to the court, you can't be given the death penalty. The death penalty comes off of the table if you've now gone to the retrial of the, of the, um, of the sentencing phase, it's only you only get two shots. Travis's family wanted her to get death. That is why they put after that first one, they were deadlocked on what to do with her sentencing. They went for number two. They weren't going to take a deal. They went for number two and it didn't happen. Well, here comes the third. And and by this time the judge says, listen, we're not doing this again. We're 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 giving we're giving her life. So they weren't going to go through this all over again. Uh, she got to say some final words, and so did Travis's family. They stood up, shared, you know, their their thoughts about what happened to him and how much they loved him and missed him. And um, she stands up and she tells them that, you know, uh, she starts ranting on about something. And then, you know, she starts about talking about domestic violence, which I don't take lightly. And and this is, you know, uh, I, I think Jody Arias was um, a little too, you know, accusatory when it came to maybe some of the things that that Travis had done, um, because no none of his friends and family really saw him that way. And, and so she holds up this T-shirt she has made, and it says Survivor on it. And she says, you know, <laughs> I mean, she says this at her post-conviction, right? Like, here's the T-shirt. I'm going to sell them. And, um, you know, I'm going to give it to um, a domestic violence organization to help other women like me. And really just a slap in the face to him because – you know, we know this was overkill and not self-defense, but yet, you know, she's sort of taking that self-defense um, stance. So it was very bizarre, very strange. Again, it's public record. You can you can see her post-conviction statement. Um, even though she was telling people she wanted to die and that death was the ultimate freedom, she asked the court, you know, please don't take my life. Um, and you know, they didn't because they couldn't decide on whether or not to convict her to death. So they ended up just having to give her life since it's that third time. Um, 
Since being in prison, Jody Arias has made friends. She's won a singing contest voted by other inmates. She works as an aide in the prison library. Uh, there is a show out I have not watched. I have not seen it. So if you have, let me know. It's called Jailhouse Confessions of Jody Arias. And I find that I want to watch it badly because I do maybe want to know some of the things that she says. I do know she told one of her um, cellmates that she was actually not alone when this happened, that there was someone else there and that it eventually will come out. Um, so TBD, <laughs> I don't know, Jody, you know, it, I, I don't know what Jody Arias is doing today. If she's doing more interviews or, or, or if she's just, you know, living her life or, or what she's, what she's actually doing in prison. But, um, this was a very bizarre case of a very bizarre person who clearly was not well mentally, um, the one thing Travis Alexander didn't do was report his stalker. Uh, I talked about this at the live show. There was no documentation on any of the things she had done over the course of their relationship. I said, we see this in the stiletto murder. We see this in cases, you know, we cover all the time. Men are not as likely to report these things because, well, most men don't believe a woman can can overtake them, right, or can hurt them as as women would feel with men. But the thing is, is that, you know, when he found out she had gone through his doggy door and was sleeping nude on his couch or the time that she would go and move things around in the kitchen, I mean, he would almost think he was going kind of crazy. He would say like, it's if I feel like somebody's been here or somebody's watching me. If just once, just once, or, or twice would have just reported it. Even if nothing had happened to her, if they would have just reported it, and then, you know, this would have been a, a red flag. Not that it may have saved him, but he could have got a restraining order at some point. He, you know, she, her name would have come up immediately in after his death. I mean, she made that phone call and put herself right smack dab in the middle of the investigation. But if her name would have been on record of having any sort of of domestic violence or any sort of stalking against Travis Alexander, especially uh, a, a restraining order, um, I, I think, you know, we maybe we have, would have got to this a little sooner in a different way than than we than, you know, the police had to go about this. You know, whether it would have saved him, I don't know. But we should all be reporting these things. It's important. Men are, are you know, statistically women are more victims, but men can be victims too. And it's important that you, that you bring this to police's attention, even if it's just to put it on record, to put it on record just in case, because it could mean the difference between life and death. Until next time, friends. Stay safe. Have fun and cheers to next time.